1: You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. Welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. On this show, we interview a lot of recovering addicts. We do a lot of redemption stories. We do anybody that has a story of coming back, you know, I posted something online that i was interviewing you and a lot of people had not a lot but a couple of people had something negative to say and um to be honest with you like when i hear your story it really reminds me of like frank Abignail i feel like he's not under scrutiny uh like the catch me if you can character because i don't know like people just don't see him that way but i think because you have all this partying and stuff like that people scrutinize you a lot more than him you know frank abognail travels to different colleges he does all sorts of speaking engagements he created a new check that's harder to forge. So, you know, I always see, like, you guys and him very similar.
0: like well, In some way. I mean, in some way it was similar, some way different. But I, first of all, you know, I, I love my haters, and I have very few of them. But, you know, the ones that are there are awesome because they drive engagement. And mm-hmm. at this point, if uh, they are still caught up in what happened 30 years ago, they obviously need to look inside or in the mirror at least. Of course. Because they have a serious issue.
1: Yeah, and I think any, like, recovering addict story, you know, anyone can go back and say, hey, look, what about this all the crap you did when you were, you know, using or whatever? So you've been clean a long time. Can, Je- I, can
0: I give it some advice to anyone yeah, listening? Listen. Sure. If you have any presence online, you post anything, do yourself a favor and don't even read the stupid comments that people put up about you <laughs> because it's very easy for people that are not – at this a long time, to actually believe some of the stupid shit that people write online. There for is a sure. hater for no matter who you are. If you are relevant in any way, you're going to have haters. Mm-hmm. And haters are actually good because they increase engagement because if there's one hater, my fans will destroy them. But <laughs> most people, it can really bother them, especially young people. They start to believe the shit that the 1,000%. haters... 1000 The haters are just cowards who are miserable in their own life. So everyone just, you know, mm-hmm. I would advise don't even look at your comments unless for you sure. want to respond to the positive
1: ones. Absolutely. And you know what? There's going to be a million positive ones and two or three, you know, Not so positive ones. Uh, So just so you know, so I'm a recovering addict. I got clean at 17. I was smoking crack when I was 14. I was addicted to opiates at 14. When I got out of treatment, swear to God, I got out of treatment in February of 2008. The first thing I did, one of the first things I did was go to the bookstore, and I went to the bookstore, and I'm a big autobiography guy, and I grabbed your book. Mm. And I remember I grabbed your, and like, I could have grabbed any book. I remember I saw this book, and it was The Wolf of Wall Street, and I turned over the back, and I saw, like, you know, gonna be a film by Leonardo, with Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, with Martin Scorsese being the the director. And I read, like, a couple pages, and I instantly was sold. Uh, I used to get everyone to read this book, and I used to tell everyone, like, it's going to be a movie one day. You guys (laughs) got to watch it. And just so you know, this is a surreal experience for me. You know, so this is something that has influenced me in my recovery, seeing that someone like you could get clean.
0: Uh, In 2008, how long were you clean at that point already? So I got sober in 1997, April 17th. Okay. So it'd been quite a while,
1: over a decade. Wow, that's cool. That's badass. So what was it like the five years before getting sentenced? Because this is how it has an exit. We talk about like the nitty gritty. Everyone sees the party lifestyle. Everyone's seen the movie and the tossing of the midgets and the quaaludes and all this stuff. But like, what was it like those five years before you? Because I've heard you in other interviews saying that those five years were really
0: rough because you didn't know what was going to happen. Right by far, were were rougher than, you know, what happened after I got out of jail. Uh But I was already sober before I got in trouble. Gotcha. So I got sober about 18 months before I got indicted. So I was was already sober. So I had already dealt with, Mm -hmm. I think, probably the most difficult part, which is the first year or probably the first few months. But I was already sober, and then I got indicted. So the movie's a bit misleading like that because they kind of juggle the timeline a bit. So, yeah. What got you sober? Like, because obviously
1: you probably thought about Getting sober many times, you mm. probably had all these people around you telling you to get
0: sober. So what was it that really made you do that leap? For a very long time, I mean, most of the people around me were telling me not to get sober. It was yeah, a problem in the uh, years that led up to that. At the end, um, yeah, it was mostly the, at the time my wife was mm-hmm. very much. She was like, and she was doing drugs too, but yeah. she just wasn't as bad as me. So you know, she was she was like the good one doing one looted a day. I was uh-huh. I was the bad one doing twelve a day. Yeah, okay. you know, on a on a light day. What really led up to me getting sober was the love of my children. It, was, it wow. really It was for my kids is to uh, get to a point where they were old enough to see what was mm-hmm. going on. And that was like something that just to me was like that linchpin moment when I actually acted out on being on drugs with my daughter in front of me. And that was the end yeah. of it for me.
1: Yeah. Uh, and I've heard a lot of stories like that where people are using it around their kids. And then this one moment happens to them where they just see that like, hey, this isn't what I want to bring my kid into. Right. Was there anyone clean or sober in that time who was helping you and guide you into recovery and like helping you along the way? Before I got sober. Yeah. Steve Madden. Sober, wow, oh, that's so crazy.
0: So, you kept a strong connection with him? Well, I did during for many the years. very not in the last year, but up until the last year, we were really, really close. Yeah. And he was he was like the only sober one of the bunch. Uh, wow. and then he actually relapsed later on, really. Yeah. How long was he sober? Oh, a long time, he was sober for I think, um, wow. I mean, he got sober in I think '88, maybe. So he's like, Jordan, you gotta like come over on this side, you know. Nah, he you wasn't judgmental like that, really? Steve. he just I think he was fascinated by my ability to. Function you know, to function at a yeah. high level because he you know basically was using the same drugs i mm-hmm. was back before he got sober quaaludes and like they kind yeah, of destroyed yeah. his life and then he built it back up again so i think that you know he was like hanging around everyone that was doing drugs and uh-huh. he wasn't doing drugs was wow. like, he was like that one sore thumb
1: sticking out you yeah know? yeah so when you actually did get sober how difficult was it to like change people places and things because i know even till today, I wonder, like, do people come up to you and try to get you to do coke today or something like that? You know, like, do people yeah. try to influence you now and are like, come on, just yeah, do a little bit sure. all the time?
0: So not a lot, but sometimes it happens. Sometimes. But but um, it was very easy for me to change all those circumstances around mm-hmm. me because I was still very, very wealthy and successful when it happened. Yeah. And I could sort of, so when I I'll give you an example, when I got, the day before I got sober, I had a standing bid on quaaludes for any real quaalude from a pharmacy, either overseas pharmacy, mm-hmm. right? 50 bucks a pill. And then when I got sober, the the price crashed to $5 a pill because they flooded them Mm -hmm. all. I was buying every one, right? Uh I might make that up. It's true. So when I got sober, you know, I was sort of the, the spiritual leader of this whole group of people, basically, you know. And Did other people start getting sober, too? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people got sober, yeah. <laughs> That's so yeah, it became sort of out of fashion. Wow. To, to, um, so
1: just for people that are listening, you know, the movie makes it seem like you were still using, then then you got arrested. No. But in real life, you were clean 18 months, Absolutely. and then you got arrested. Yeah. What do you think would have happened if you were
0: still using when they came? You know, it's really hard to say. I mean, I I have some friends that were still using when they got arrested. They weren't able to handle it as well? No, they were because, you know, what happens is force absence because then you're on, you know, like when you're in pretrial, even if you're out on bail, they drug test you, Mm -hmm. right? And ironically, they never drug tested me once when I was on pretrial because the the guy knew I was sober. He never bothered to drug test me, you know? I think that it's different for everybody, but the most important thing for me was that I was done. I was ready to get sober. When yeah. you're ready to get sober, you can get sober in the best yeah. rehab in the world. You can get sober Under in the rooms bridge. of AA. It doesn't yeah, really, course. you know, for me, going to a rehab was an adult timeout, which was mm-hmm. important, and yeah, that, you yeah. know, that helped me.
1: Did you go to 12-step meetings for a long time? I still? did.
0: Oh, okay, cool. I did. I chaired them in the beginning. I was very wow. active in the community for the first
1: few years. How but, would you... Explain twelve step meeting, because when I read your book, I remember thinking because I remember in the book you were talking about how like uh, like these people are aliens or they're just like talking all crazy and like you know people clap all the time and it just was like weird. that was the rehab that yeah was, that, yeah, oh, that yeah, was yeah, the yeah, yeah. yeah the rehab was just like
0: you know seemed like a cult kind of right well the rehab was kind of fucked up because yeah. this was not a normal rehab this rehab was um, for doctors mostly uh-huh. so people, oh like an LPM pe- program people were not there for four weeks they were there until the staff said you're cured so everyone was like oh, just saying I'm cured weird. I'm cured running around like robots, I'm cured, I'm cured, like it was this freaking weird Orwellian Uh quasi like, you know, know, mainland China social credit score (laughs) type of thing where everyone's watching you and if they do something wrong your score declines and then you Mm -hmm. can't get Back to being a doctor. Wow. Sooner, you know, later versus sooner. So they're just
1: jumping the hoop so that way they can get and out. Everyone and, was so yeah. disingenuous,
0: so much disingenuous bullshit, mm-hmm. and I was above it all, not because I was any better of a drug. Because I didn't give a fuck. I was there for me. Yeah. Like I didn't need that. I really wanted to I was really there of choice, not to get a license mm-hmm. back. So I was like, "What the fuck is with these people? They're just like yeah. so full of shit." And like you know, like they're saying, like the pa, How do you feel? I feel like I'm sober. Thank God for making me. I'm like, mm-hmm. Let's just shut up and be authentic. Yeah. You know. So I was like, I hate this fucking place, mm-hmm. but I have to be here because I don't want to be a drug addict anymore. Gotcha. Sort of like a different mentality. What, how would you explain 12-step
1: meetings to people that have never been to them? Because like my whole goal in life is to make 12-step meetings seem more attractive to people, to make it seem not as culty and weird, to make it seem fun. Like what was your experience
0: going to meetings? Well, some meetings are great and some meetings suck, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to find the meetings that are right for you. I mean, of course. You always say, don't pick up a girl or a guy at an AA meeting. Of course, I broke that rule of right course. away. And my spouse, you say, it's like two dump trucks running into each other when you <laughs> meet a person, both you were sober for less than a year, right? Yes. But of course, I made that mistake once. And we all do. It ended poorly, but, uh, mm-hmm. but it was good at the moment, you know? Listen, I think that you have to find the right AA meeting. Number one, to me, I like rooms that have a lot of sobriety in them, mm-hmm. like where they were well-run rooms with people that were not all newcomers. So yeah. you can, you know, look and really see people that have long-term sobriety. I remember when I first got sober and I, on, on the way to rehab, I was intervened on, on the way to the rehab. I was like, how do you guys, I don't get it. How do you guys stay sober? Like 10 years sober. How do you, they're like one day at a time. I'm like, yeah, I yeah, know, go fuck yourself. How do you really stay sober? Yeah. They're like, no, one day at a time. And I was like, I couldn't quite wrap my arms around that comment concept. But I think that when you go to the rooms of AA and you see all that long-term sobriety, you know, you mm-hmm. see people that have been doing it for a long time and how great their lives are. You also see new people that have fucked up their lives are. So you get, you gotta, you gotta see all the different yeah. things and the new people remind the old people how fucked up it'll be if yep. they relapse. So there's a lot of that going there's on. There's
1: an old timer that used to say, y'all, you are all my teachers. Yeah. Some of you teach me what not to do. And mm. some of you teach me what to do, Yeah, you know? And I feel like, you know, I try to explain the 12 step program as like the gym. Like, I saw someone the other day, and they were like, man, did you know that I went to a meeting and some people were high? And I was just like, no shit, you know? Yeah, that's common. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, could you imagine going to the gym and being like, hey, I went to the gym. Some people were fat. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like the right. same concept. When you see a heavy person in the gym, you don't look down at them. You're like, wow, that guy's really trying to fight for his life lose you right. know lose weight it's like inspiring. analogy. Yeah, you yeah. know when you go to a meeting and you see someone high you shouldn't be like oh look at that loser he's here high it's yeah. kind of like wow that person's high. i don't know how many meetings you went to high but when i was using i never went to meetings you know what i mean well, i, I mean,
0: no i mean like i think that's a, i think that people in aa if you're in if you're in a real a room that really mm-hmm. is like a real room yeah uh, they they are going to embrace you if you're 1,000%. high and they're going to they're going to support you and not judge you because 1,000%. they've all been there and mm-hmm. uh and I think you're right about that. I think it's a great analogy. Thank you. And, and at the same time,
1: it's like, you know, that's what we're here for. The whole purpose of that meeting is to help the person that needs it the most, you know. And they actually consider that person the most important person in the room. That, and that's like a thing that people don't understand. They don't understand that it's not really like something that you go to, like some pretentious thing. It's really like this humble type of thing And that if you do go high, the people that have been there long term is going to circle and surround that person kind of like a family let me ask you something so you know I'm always been into into books and movies how difficult was it writing the
0: the book because you wrote it in jail right no I I I taught myself to write in jail so I I started uh writing after I was in jail for about maybe a month and I was very very poor writer in the beginning and then I stumbled upon this book called bonfire of the vanities and I Uh used that book as a textbook to teach me how to write i wow. just kind of ripped apart the strategy so i spent about you know really six months to a year really teaching myself the how skill, to write first had the skill of writing this is a skill to do yeah. it right and then i got to about a page 130 and then i ripped everything up and it's before i left jail said so that's not good enough because i didn't think it was good wow. enough so, Someone actually put those pages back together and sent them. We still have uh-huh. them now, and they're pretty interesting to read. It's an early version of my writing. And then uh, when I got out of jail, I was back to page one, and I started writing. I wrote ten pages, and, and I, I was like, wow, those were a lot better than I remembered writing in jail. Mm-hmm. And and that was how I started. So I started, really started writing the book right as I got out of jail.
1: Right when you got out, that's interesting. So as somebody who writes and you know enjoys reading and stuff, like how did you go from writing this thing on a piece of paper to getting
0: into like real bookstores, you know? Right, so so when I started writing, first thing I do did was I, I sent it out to a few friends, uh-huh. and I was like, just see what they would think, right? And they all three called me back with these like crazy response is like oh my god it's like amazing uh-huh. and i am like really like you know <laughs> it's your writing you don't yeah be, it's hard to judge your own writing you know mm-hmm. and uh, and one of them was actually my sponsor in AA, very oh, wealthy cool. man from long island and then he i caught, he picks, i pick up the phone and he's like he's like ah. Oh! <laughs> and him and his wife are just like laughing out loud wow i'm like you like he goes i don't like it he goes i love it he goes like wow. i can't believe you wrote this wow i'm like well, I wrote it because I, I can't believe it's so good. I was like, wow, really? He was super rich. He's like, listen, whatever money you need, I'll give you. Like I was broke because uh-huh. I'll give you as much as you want to, to write. Go just write this book. So I sent the book. The next day, I sent these 10 pages out to an agent in mm-hmm. Hollywood who specializes in getting books sold and made into movies. Mm-hmm. And I sent in the first 10 pages and he calls me back. A, just 10 pages? That's 10 crazy. Pages. I sent him the first 10 pages and he's like, who the fuck wrote those pages? Mm-hmm. He like, did Tom Wolfe write those pages? I was modeling Tom mm-hmm. Wolfe, the writer. He's like, no, I wrote them myself. He's like, bullshit. I said, no, I really wrote them myself. He's like, I don't believe those 10 more pages. So uh-huh. I spent about a week, and I wrote another 10 pages. I sent him the, the second 10, and he says to me, he goes, just stop everything that you're doing. He goes, I want you to just trust me here. You don't understand how famous you're about to become. I was like, really? He's like, I don't think you understand how good this is. you believe I didn't until he said, and I'm going to get Leonardo DiCaprio to play you in a movie directed by Martin Scorsese. He said that after 20 pages. He said it 20 pages. He said it. Jesus. And uh, I just thought that, I was like, wow. I was like, and I I never had written before and I I was wondering if I could ever finish the book Mm -hmm. because it was taking me a really long time just to write 10 pages, right? So I called up my friend, I said, I think I'm gonna do this. He goes, how much you want? And he has to maybe like half a million, he wired me half a million dollars. He's a friend of mine, very rich Mm -hmm. rich guy. He goes, just take the money, just lock yourself. So I had a little bit of money and I locked myself in my house and I didn't have any human contact for probably almost 11 months, except, for my, except for my children. My children yeah. would come over, and they watched me just sit there in the corner and write this book. And I did a few other things in the beginning that were pretty smart. Like I mm-hmm. backed myself into a corner by, I started telling people I knew I'm gonna write a bestseller. Yeah, So I had no Accountability. choice. Accountability. Yeah, like yeah, I sort of made it so like I had no choice but to live up to the promises made to my children and so forth. And then by the time I got to page 60, I sent the first 60 pages now to this agent. Mm-hmm. His name is Joel Gottler. He's a big agent in Hollywood. And Joel read the sixty pages. He goes, "I'm, I'm fucking blown away. I'm going right into the New York City. I'm going to sell this book for a ton of money." Mm -hmm. And sure enough, he went down into the city, and bam, Random House bought the book for more than the guy had advanced me the money. So right, and so suddenly I was like, "Wow!" I was like, "That was easy." (laughs) Like for a first book, it's like I I couldn't believe it, right? And then I sat down with their editor, who uh, was a phenomenal editor, Daniel Perez, and she like made me sort of okay, let's come up with chapters. So she made me put into like you know come up with chapter ideas, Mm -hmm. and I had a structure. For the book and then I wrote the book over a period of about 11 months and the a draft was, the first draft was 1,200 pages. Wow. And I went through seven edits to get it down to 538. Who
1: did you envision playing you before they told you it'd be Leonardo DiCaprio?
0: I thought maybe like a young Tom Cruise like from a, uh, movie, Rain Man, when he was, like, yeah. selling the cars, like, the yeah. Rain Walker, I thought that would be a great guy okay. to play me, you know, there's already been a movie about my company that was where I was played by Ben Affleck, the boiler room, uh-huh, that boiler guy room. worked yeah, to me, yeah. right, so that was, like, very loosely based on the whole company. Yeah, yeah, so is boiler room related to your story? Yeah, well, the guy, it was about wow. Stratton in a really loose, yeah, loose, in way. A loose way, and I thought it was okay, and... Did they ever like ask you about it? No, when, when it came out, I started getting Google alerts, but like they're saying it's about my life, and uh-huh. I was like, "That's not really my life." But yeah, it's way cooler. Whatever. <laughs> and like uh, they're taking a bus, we didn't take a fucking bus anywhere. Are they think a bus to Atlantic City, but anyway. But yeah. you know, it was sort of it was interesting movie. But I was thinking that you know, Toilet room shaped my life. Yeah, you know, so, yeah, that was like yeah. yeah, there was a lot of stuff in there. It just wasn't an act. Of course, of course, it was, it was interesting course. to see part of it. Right. Yeah, so I think I think Leo was like, like, when the movie, when the book was done and it got passed out to Leo and Brad Pitt and George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg, it was a bidding war between Mark between all three, Mark Wahlberg, Brad Pitt, and Leo. And uh-huh. at the time, Wahlberg wasn't as big a star. Now he's a huge star. Yeah. He was just getting started back then, right? And I love him. He was great. But uh came down to Leo and Brad Pitt and each one of them said, whatever he pays you, I'll pay you 10% more. Wow. So the bidding war went up and up and up over a weekend and finally Leo brought Scorsese to the picture. So, Scorsese wasn't a part of it up until that point? No, not until that point. You
1: didn't know who the director was going to be?
0: Well, I didn't know there was even gonna be a movie. I mean, I wrote that you don't write when you write a book you Don't think about it really becoming a movie. Well, I mean the chances of it becoming a movie. Okay, so the chances of it like being sold to a publisher are like one in a million, yeah. the chances of it then being bought by a studio one in, one in million. A ten million, yeah. and then the chances of it actually being made to be we one in a billion yeah. because it's such a long shot. So even when Leo attaches himself, it's still a one in ten thousand mm-hmm. shot that he's gonna actually make. And then something. it could get
1: shelved. People buy like, the rights of movies and then they, happened they never make happened. it. It yeah. did happen
0: to me for a while. Yeah, because I remember telling everyone the movie going to come out yeah. and then like it never The, difference, out. the yeah. difference was is that when Leo bought the book rights mm-hmm. through Warner Brothers, he came to my house and he said to me, listen, I buy a lot of projects. He goes, this is different. Mm-hmm. This is my passion project. I am going to play you. I will get this done. Have faith in me. I promise you. He looked me in the eye and he goes, I promise you I'm going to get this done. So it was never a normal project for Leo. And he and every time a friend of mine would run into Leo, and they would say, Who's he, more convincing? You or Jordan or you or Leonardo? Well, I taught Leo the straight, <laughs> the straight line, I taught Leo the straight line yeah. system, I bet you could teach me how to act, but wow. but um, I taught him how to sound, like, he, the way he, I, mm-hmm. I worked with him for a year, and yeah. he's an amazingly talented person, but we went through the sales stuff line by line, mm-hmm. the tonalities, and everything like that, so the reason he sounds so authentic is because he did a lot of work, he didn't yeah. have, Leo's a very hard-working guy, very diligent guy, he doesn't just say, oh, I'm, I'm Leo, I'm gonna be successful, he yeah. works really hard at what he does, so... um. I said, well, I guess it's better than having Danny DeVito play you, right? I mean, I nothing against Danny DeVito.
1: I love Danny DeVito. And yeah, but... he was going to play Jonah Hill's but, character, yeah, right? Yeah, right. So,
0: <laughs> so it was sort of, it was a bit surreal with Leo, but I, I was, you know, a hundred percent certain that he was going to make the movie because he looked yeah. me in the eye and gave and me his word, and he's word. got, he's got a very good reputation, Leo, for for, yeah. for honesty and. uh and sure enough, we it took a while to get it mm-hmm. done, but we got it done. I read
1: on IMDb that Jonah Hill got hospitalized for snorting too much vitamins. Nah. He, is that true?
0: I don't know. <laughs> Sounds like a lie, but, oh, uh, yeah. but uh, it's but, uh, on
1: the trivia, it's on the trivia part of your movie where it says that Jonah Hill had to, got hospitalized after the movie because he was snorting what, like too
0: diarrhea much or something, what I saying, don't know. Right? Well, you guys snorting vitamin B twelve back in the movie. Mostly, it's uh, you know, it's interesting because I, I I actually played a practical joke on a friend of mine who's got a podcast and uh-huh. uh, he's sober and it's uh, my friend Jeff Beecher and uh, and he does a podcast with um, you fake snorted coke in front of him. I, I know. I, <laughs> no, no, no. What I did is I actually. So with Kelly Osborne and him in a podcast, yeah, right? Yeah, she's, she's sober a long yeah. time. And before I went in there, I went out and got some like um like a baby egg-powdered like um vitamin C. It looks just like uh-huh. Coke, right? And I may, play a joke, and I'm like, um, but I relapse? Yeah, right. Yeah. So right before, oh, I, So right great. before I walk into the podcast, I go into the bathroom. And I like I spend all this time like, just getting it just right, so there's a mm-hmm. little white shit hanging. I like, go, you get mm-hmm. it, like not too much because it's obvious, yeah. but just the so is right down. And I what walk, they say. and I just walk. In. I'm like, all right, guys, I'm like let's fucking go. We gotta, we got we gotta be on target today because we're gonna make a dent in you. And I started like just <laughs> acting really fucking wired. Yeah, you know? yeah. I'm like, you ready, guys? And they're like. They were fucking petrified. They're looking at each other. They're like, okay. And like, they did and like I'm like, I'm wondering if they're gonna call me out or they were too fucking scared. And they wow. you know, they're texting, and I'm like, and it turns out they were texting each other. Like, what the fuck are we uh-huh. gonna do? He, he relapsed, right? So I'm sitting there, come on, wow. first, ask me any question. Ask me anything. Mm-hmm. I'm like, it's hot in here, because don't put their own thing. <laughs> And then finally they're like, Ugh. I'm like, guys. You understand, I'm just totally fucking with you. They're well, like, oh, my God.
1: <laughs> Let me ask you something. Did you all really
0: toss midgets? I, I didn't toss <laughs> midgets. We discussed it. So here's what happened. We were, we it started off we had midgets at a party with sombreros uh-huh. and chips and dip and shit, right? And like walking around like, you know, using them as like as like walking fucking trays for serving. Right? So they would have sombreros and you'd have chips, chips and dips. Dip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And then we were always looking to come up with like the latest act of depravity. It was like the Roman policy, mm-hmm. what can we do to entertain the masses, right? And and this was an idea that was discussed in very, very great detail. I wasn't there when it happened. So, you know, I was strategically absent when it went down. Yeah. Yeah, I went to a bachelor. People do not have to bother. If you ask people, <laughs> half people say it happened and half will say it This it, is the funniest thing. Yeah. ever. It's like if you ask, them, what's the truth? There's mm-hmm. two truths to this. People will say, yeah, I was there. I was like, it never fucking happened. <laughs> it's like, it's the I funny. was at a
1: bachelor party with like 10 years in recovery, and uh, they had midget toss in there. And I remember feeling kind of bad. Like, you know, this is kind of fucked up, but the midget was no, totally, no, no, they no, was no. like totally into Dude, it. Dude, let
0: me just tell you something. The midgets, first of all, they're getting paid a fucking bloody fortune yeah. for this shit, and they're all they're fucking awesome. They're, they're for like, indestructible it. Yeah. too, by the way. Yeah, like the movie you know, says. I felt
1: bad, but not bad enough to not toss the midge. You know
0: what I mean? But like it was. It I was think it's fun. banned by the Geneva Convention. It's a human rights violation. Oh really? Yeah. Well, maybe I, st- maybe I didn't.
1: Maybe I didn't toss the midge. No, it's well, stupid. No, it's
0: stupid because honestly, it's like if, if midge is going to make five thousand dollars get tossed, tossed, and he wants to yeah. do it, and it's, and on it's on totally a, it's, safe. It's, totally it's on a bed
1: mattress. He's got the whole thing. You
0: know, no, it's done, like, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I listen, I'm not saying I recommend this to everybody out there, or I, I'm not engaged in this uh-huh. competition right now. But I think, in the, in the <laughs> general act of things that happened to Stratton, it's probably kind of low on the totem pole. Yeah, it's hole, not that but the worst things that happened, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? There's far worse than that that went down. It was still pretty humane. But yeah, I mean, you know, they got paid. Yeah. You were enslaving them, and that was the point. Exactly. You
1: know? And you're giving them a job. What books did you read early on that kind of influenced you? Like did you ever read any like for writing or told to write or just to in, in Motivational <laughs> books.
0: Like did you ever read like a yeah, book? Yeah. The one book that I think probably had more impact on me than all the others combined was a book called Thinking Grow Rich. Yeah, yeah, of course. By Napoleon Hill. Yeah. And that was just a great book on the mindset of success. And, yeah. and it's sort of it was it was this sort of crossover because like, you know, to me the secret can be very Who toxic. Who told you about that book? It was a well-known it was, book. It just, was a well-known book. Yeah. You go into the bookstore; it was there at the time. You know, I don't know if anyone told me about it. I just, it was a well-known book, and I think that, like, what I what I like about that is that it sort of bridges the gap between some of the nonsense from the Secret, which mm-hmm. really is about manifesting success. Yeah, and I'm not not a fan like, of the Secret. Well, like, you, it, I'm a fan of the idea behind the Secret. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is the way it's written and the way it's misused by people is it's a sort of the lazy man's it's like way of magic. getting success. It's also it, like to me,
1: it's I like the more like the bust your ass and work until like your eyeballs but the, bleed mentality. But the point
0: is is that the, the 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 highest level of the secret is is not mutually exclusive with mm-hmm. that. I believe the secret is true, but you have to bust your ass for it to happen. Yes. The idea of the secret is that you visualize yes. and you manifest mm-hmm. what you think about, which is true. But not it's because it, it. not because it just jump jumps out of the universe. Mm-hmm. It's because well, the way your brain works is that when you're thinking of something and you're visualizing. It, it is a signal to your conscious mind to focus on those mm-hmm. things around me of that course. are congruent with that opportunity. So it's you start like moving you, in the direction yeah. of the things that you want. It's the in same life. thing when,
1: when you've never seen a car before and someone's like, oh, that's the new Ferrari F8. And now you start seeing them all over the place. Exactly. It's same so it thing. heightens
0: your awareness 100%. about what you should be moving towards. Now, if you read the book and you think you're going to sit on your couch and wish for a bag of money yeah. to hit you on the head, good fucking luck. Not gonna but happen. the idea is that you sit on your couch and you know, praying for certain things to manifest themselves and they and you move towards mm-hmm. those things in the real world, then that's a very powerful of strategy.
1: So Think and Grow Rich, Tony Robbins has this bit that I saw him do where he was saying that, you know, he had read the book and he had read all these other books and he's talking to his mentor and he's like, I don't know what to do. I've read all these books. And his mentor looks at him and he's like, well, why don't you read Think and Grow Rich? And he's like, I've read it. And he goes, how many times? And he's like, I read it once. And he's like, I read it 10 times. I'm rich, you're broke. Go read it again, you know? So yeah, a lot
0: I- of times people think they're going to read one book and then it's going to like uh-huh, you know. Well, I think everyone is different. Like I think like, you know, some people go to an AA room and they get it the first time. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to go back a bunch of times. Yeah. Some of it is when you're ready mm-hmm. to accept the information. And if you're not ready to accept the information, you could read it and you're like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's a good concept. Mm-hmm. But you're not internalizing it and acting on it. For so sure. the think thinking for a rich only works if you're willing to act on the information. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people read it. He probably read it at the time, Tony. He's obviously a very became a very yeah. action-oriented individual. And he probably just read it passively. He's like, oh, mm-hmm. this is really interesting information. Let me make a note of that shit versus. Mm-hmm really using this stuff in the real because it's very powerful. What The Thinking Bridge doesn't do is give you strategies, mm-hmm. but it sets you up to go learn those strategies and shows you how, where, and when to find them.
1: 1000%. Yeah, I think that book is phenomenal. If you haven't read it, you're gonna read book. it. What qualities does your sponsor have for you to pick him? He was rich. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense
0: for me. I needed to. I needed. I needed someone. someone I, I tremendous to. respect for him. Mm-hmm. Tremendous respect. Of all the people I saw in AA, he stuck out as far and above the sagest. Everyone loved him. He was very successful, and he had the most fucked up story, just <laughs> like me. <laughs> Like He was like a a villain, this guy. He was a terrible human being. He would say, I'm the terrible, most awful person. And to, I think to the day, I think he's still alive. But he spent the rest of his life making up for that by helping wow. people. He's a really good guy. But he was just incredibly Great speaker. He was so, I remember like hanging on his everywhere. He had this gigantic fucking head, like Fred Flintstone, <laughs> right? And he was on TV. He was the guy that you probably had seen this guy. Yeah. Back in the day, he used to have these commercials at three in the morning. What are you fucking doing in your, are you up right now? You shouldn't be up. You need to come to see, and he had this commercial. Where I was like, holy, it's like scary looking yeah, at the yeah. guy, right? Great guy, and I just resonated with his story, with his comeback, mm-hmm. and uh, everything about him. Wow, that's cool. What things did he teach you? you he told me many, many things. I mean, he, you know, I think the most important thing that he used to say to me, the, you know, yesterday is history, tomorrow's a mystery, and today is a gift. That's what we call it, the present. Mm-hmm. That was his sort of philosophy in life, that like you can't, change the past you don't know what's going to happen in the future but right now you're in the moment you today's a gift you make the most of it that was like mm-hmm. one of his overarching philosophies for life of course you know and he was also just a i think the other thing that he showed me was he showed me a side of of being sober that was very empowered side mm-hmm. it wasn't a disempowered yeah because a side. lot of times
1: people have these commercials or whatever like oh you're gonna go to a 12-step meeting and they're gonna teach you how to be powerless but that's not really what i see when i go to meetings i see a people no. that have
0: taken their power back yeah he just was like this sort of uh he was truly an amazing guy, mm-hmm. the most flawed human being you could meet. Mm-hmm. Really, a very flawed person. And he'd be the first person to tell you that. But he was also the most amazing person yeah. in what he did with his flaws and how he changed his life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just really, I got a lot of respect from him.
1: What type of assignments did he give you? Because I would imagine him sponsoring you, he's trying to bring your ass down. He's trying to, like, get rid of that ego. And, you know, all this, like, pretentious stuff. He's trying to let I mean, you know. that he lost, like, a hundred grand to my company, by the way. Which, <laughs> oh, yeah? Which he thought was hysterical <laughs> wow, because funny. he was worth
0: a few hundred million. Mm-hmm. But he's like, oh, he's like that sort of guy. Listen, he was, um, wow. more than anything, he was, like, his other famous expression was, yeah, I know, you suffer from terminal uniqueness. Yeah. Because you're just like terminal, everyone. Like, you know, yep. this idea that you're just like everyone else. That was, like, a big one. But also, like, this, the pragmatic idea that success, sobriety, it's not a destination. It's what you bring to it every day. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like day-by-day mentality. He was still going to six meetings a week. And he never wow. like he never let his guard down, so to speak. He taught me that you know you could live sober and be awesome. Because mm-hmm. he was awesome. Now so mm-hmm. like it wasn't this weird, like, oh, you gotta like not have fun. And yeah, like like, some... it's just a weird, it's a misconception
1: about being sober. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I first got clean, there was this guy who got clean at 18, and he was super successful. And I remember I used to see him around. He drove like a nice car. He'd always in a suit and uh, super funny. And I remember he came up to me. I was 17 years old, and he he came up to me after the meeting, and he grabbed me. And he's like, how old are you? I said, I'm 17. And he grabbed me closer. He whispered in my ears, and he goes, if you get clean now, you got the world by the balls, kid. And that was a totally different message than my probation officers, totally different message than the, you know, police, my family. Unless you get, so now you'll be dead by 25. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's kind of what people were kind of saying, you know. You know, I'm trying to like, you know, have that message, you know, live on. How was it mending your relationship with your family? Because I know for most addicts, that's, like, the hardest part is that, you know, you could get the cars back and you can get, like, all these other things back, but mending that relationship back with
0: your family is usually
1: the hardest thing.
0: That was, for me, that was very easy. easy For me, I mean, I I think, you know, there was a lot of things that I did that were very self-destructive, and they were somewhat destructive Mm -hmm. to the people around me. But I think that I also... You know, I had a very high bottom, as it's called. Like I wasn't in the street stealing. Yeah. Like could you like there's some really bad shit that happens when you have a low bottom when you really can you know, run into money and then you're in this mm-hmm. desperation mode. And I think a great movie that depicted that was less than zero. Of course. You know, it really shows what when someone goes bad yeah. from a good right. And I just didn't have And He went into that after that movie. Yeah, he and, became and he's, that he's character. crazy. I know, right? Really yeah. crazy, right? So for me, it's like I—I I was still like everybody was. I was providing the financial support for everybody around me, not mm-hmm. just my own family, but like thousands and thousands of people worked at my company. Yeah. So it was sort of like everyone like they had this weird, sort of respect for me and holy shit, the guy's like out of his mind sort mm-hmm. of thing. You know, I think the one thing is with my wife at the time. You know, she's like the ultimate victim. You know, she'll, if you ask her, oh, I was a victim, says, this just fucking nonsense. You yeah. know, she 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 tries to play the victim, which I think is really sad because. You know, she was the furthest thing from that. She mm-hmm. was part and parcel with me the whole way, partying. And I think it's a more. I think she'd be a more empowering individual if she just said, "Hey, I was fucked up too, and I'm clean now, and of I course. learned from the mistakes." She was an asshole. I was an asshole. But so I, I think with my relationship with her never could recover. But it wasn't because yeah. of the drugs. It was because of the two of us who were just not meant to be together. Mm-hmm. But other than her, my relationship with my kids is unbelievable now. I mean, it's really- Yeah, I see them on
1: on your Instagram.
0: So that's yeah, really I was cool. Really close with my children, yeah. and I'm very lucky. You know, um, I. Th- think that sometimes, you know, you do things when you're high and mm-hmm. if you really fuck the people over in your family, that can be take many years to repair. Yeah. But most things can be repaired. One thousand percent. Have people reached out to you like super elite
1: athletes or people in the in the financial world to do interventions or talk to a guy? Because I'm sure when you're in that upper echelon of society, you don't have respect for nobody until unless they're like
0: kind of an equal. Sure. Do people call you yeah, about that I mean, stuff? Yeah, people, many people, but interestingly enough, mostly I've, I've it's been for um interventions not for drugs but for comebacks i've had gotcha. really really famous people really famous mm-hmm. people that have fallen from grace in some way whether through a scandal or mm-hmm. something not so much drug addiction and then you know, hey you know let's talk and, and try to help you know what did you do how did you make this mm-hmm. comeback but i i think that i probably am the mentor without meeting them for like hundreds of thousands of drug addicts yeah. around the world because i get the emails and the thank yous yeah, yeah. from all the, the people that you were know, saying wow i was in jail or i was fucked up i read your book and i see your life now and mm-hmm. i just it's like it's my guiding light is your life you know what mm-hmm. i'm saying people can look at my life so i i think like I, my mentor was Tom Wolf. He taught me how to write. I mm-hmm. never met him. Yeah. I was in jail, but I still used him as a mentor. And still so I think give him accolades that, now. Exactly. So I think that, you know, people, I probably have I mean, millions maybe, even people that were drug addicts that read my book, see my life, and used yeah. my story to empower themselves, which is awesome. That's awesome. Let me ask you something. You think you're a better
1: salesman now or back in the day? You think you're getting better over time?
0: Well, I mean, I think that from a skill level, probably kind of reached the pinnacle of my game somewhere in my 30s mm-hmm. right and i probably slightly marginal improvements here and there but i'm much lazier than i used to be <laughs> like part of sales seriously yeah. no like sales to be the top sales person in the, wor- mm-hmm. the world it's like like it's 90 hard work yeah like i was such an insanely hard worker when i was young mm-hmm. like i would do things i would never do now because i'm thankfully too wealthy and too successful. And and I'm just past that point in my life. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm the first one to admit that if you want to say who's the best salesperson in the world, it's probably the guy who works the hardest out Mm -hmm. there that has a reasonable level of skill. That Mm -hmm. person's going to, you know, you can, I teach a system called the straight line. It's very powerful. It takes people and makes them great. But, Those same people, you got to find the ones that really put in the effort and knock on the doors or pick up the phone or do the Mm -hmm. networking. Those are the ones that become the top closers in the world. So I would put myself at the age when I, okay, how about this? When I lost all my money, when I got in trouble at 30, 36 years old, Mm -hmm. I went out and started selling mortgages. I would put myself against any human in the world that was selling mortgages at the time. And there's no one could have outclosed me then because uh-huh. I was hungry, I was into it, and I was wow. using every skill I had. Now a day, if someone says, let me think, I'm like, have a nice day, <laughs> <I'm> like, <"Have laughs> yeah. is like, i like, this like, I don't
1: wanna deal uh, with it. You just want the lay down. I'll let my kids deal with yeah, it. Yeah. I'm looking for lay downs uh-huh. now. Uh, let me ask you something. How much money were you we making at 25? Million a week. Million a week, yeah, 52 million a year. That's crazy.
0: More than, like a million a week cash, but yeah. made a lot more in like paper,
1: where, you're mm-hmm. buying companies. If you walked in, let's say, you know, Jordan Belfort now was able to walk into an elevator and bump into 25 year old Jordan Belfort. What do you think you can sell him as to why he should stop living his life the way he's living now? Do you think that's unsellable? Do you think that he wouldn't listen? Like, what could you really say to yourself at that time that would really try to get him to change?
0: It's a good question. I mean, I think that it could be very difficult. Okay, so look, it's a hypothetically. If it was me looking them like you know, hey, th- dude, let me just tell you what's gonna fucking happen here. You know, obviously, I could say thank you, and I wouldn't do it, right? <laughs> yeah. Like you know, if it was that, like a mm-hmm. time machine sort of thing. But if a stranger, yeah, you can't like, tell him. You, you, you can't tell him it's you because like, that's right? the so code so, of time so, travel. I, I think at the age of tw- right, it could cause us <laughs> break the fabric of yeah, reality, yeah. right? Like fucking uh, Loki, yes, the variants, right? Exactly. So, so um, I think that if I was gonna tell someone else just like me right now. What Mm -hmm. I would say to them is that number one, it's not too late to change direction. In other words, I was on a direction when I was 25, 26. That was 90% okay. And 10% with it veered off course. It wasn't mm-hmm. like I was just committing crime, wasn't it? It was very, very minor. The crimes I was doing all, all happened all over Wall Street. And nowadays, the crypto- There's a, it's, it's cr- it's there's in, a
1: crazy gray
0: area. No, I know. But also, today, yes. it's like legal. The old crypto, just oh, everyone's doing it's this. Insane. it's just like, it yeah. became normal. The mistake I made, well, let's say the mistaken belief I had, is I felt at a certain point that it had gone too far. This is how it's going. And there's nothing I can really do mm-hmm. to stop it. It's bigger than me. I felt like I had lost control of it because it got so big, so fast. There were so many people involved. And that was untrue. That was a false belief I had. Gotcha. And I had sort of felt like I was sort of in this direction doing a certain thing and I could have stopped it. Listen, I had Steve Madden's shoes was the third IPO I ever did it ended up being mm-hmm. a eight billion dollar company. That deal alone, I own eighty five percent of it. A legit I could company. have made three or four billion yep. on that one deal. Like so those, what happened was I, I should have slowed down and just said, stop, not smuggle my money to Switzerland. Mm-hmm. But like at the time, it's like one foot in front of the other. And you think you're on this path. And that's probably what I said, listen, you know, you could stop right now and change direction and Go just a little bit to the right, and everything mm-hmm. will be fine,
1: yeah. 1000 because you still could have just been like, Look, you're doing some gray area stuff, you could have just not you just done it, that. It could have stopped and, and a little just bit less money, doing, and then yeah, it, a and little 10 less times money, more money than in 10 the times long more run, two years later, exactly. Yeah. But then you'd have do you think you would have been able to get off drugs without
0: what well, you eventually got off drugs without getting arrested or anything? No, I did get off drugs, it's yeah. it not that. It's, I, I think that it's easy to Here's the thing people say, have regrets, I say no. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean I don't feel bad. Some people lost money. I'm saying I don't think it's healthy to live with regrets. Mm -hmm. And also, I wouldn't change a single thing that happened because it's my life. And, you know, my life is today fucking amazing. Mm -hmm. I have an amazing life. I love what I do. I have the honor and the obligation and also the awesomeness of having people know me and look up to me all over the world, young people. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's awesome. It's great. I make a lot of money doing it. And it's a platform I've developed for giving people, you know, hopefully solid wisdom about life and success versus a lot of, of the nonsense that you see online right now. There is so much nonsense that it's and there's insane. all these
1: fakes and wannabes, fake gurus, and and gay gay fake gurus. gurus sign up to my business course or whatever. I never,
0: did, I never. And, and I think, you know, we, we were brought by a guy who used to work for me, and he knows, Joel, he knows that, like, I never once, I knew I could have, I refused to ever do a business opportunity. Mm-hmm. Even though I knew that I could have made $50 million by biz the straight line. But I refused to do it because I said it's not legitimate. Like, I'm mm-hmm. teaching someone a skill, but when you say, oh, you don't have to learn to sell, you can just sell sales courses to other people and that whole, that's, so yeah. that, that aspect of online is very
1: troublesome to me. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you something, you ever think about, because I was thinking this on the way here, like, your movie and your writing is so good. You ever think about just writing movies and
0: selling movies? So that was my my original plan. So originally, so I wrote the first book, I wrote the second book, and then um, I was commissioned for two. And then um, I was like, well, I'm just going to be a writer the only problem is I hate writing. Like, I fucking hate it. Like I, I hey, really, If there's enough money at the end of the rainbow, you I might really, yeah. really. But you know, it's not about that because there's a lot of ways to make a lot of money, and yeah. I didn't enjoy it enough. And I love speaking. Gotcha. So you know, I wrote a third book, and it was a huge bestseller again, The Way of the Wolf, and I still mm-hmm. get checks from all the books today. But it, you know, I was a grueling year of writing that book. So to me, I was approached by I had a deal with. Um, it was universal for another book called uh, The Mortgage Man. It was gonna be about the mortgage crisis. And I started writing this book and I was just so miserable writing the book. Mm -hmm. And I just stopped and said, you know what? Fuck it. There's no amount of money that's making it. So like I'm not happy (laughs) while I'm doing it, you know? So, How was uh, your understanding of like a higher power when you started going to meetings? So I think to me, it wasn't so much like I looked at it as a higher power, like God sitting Mm -hmm. in a chair with white robes or anything like that. It was more about like, there's something greater than myself. Like I, it was more about like being, I'm not in control of this whole thing and like, I just mm-hmm. have to like not, you know, you just can't will yourself into sobriety, it mm-hmm. just doesn't work that way. So for me, it was almost like the rooms of AA were my higher power for of a course. while. You yeah. know, I just used that as a sort of a way of like saying, yeah, you rely on the power of that. But I, you know, I'm a spiritual person, but I don't, I don't think that like, I believe that we're masters of our own destiny. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I think there's a, a force greater than us, but it's hard to verbalize it. So for me, I just, you know, I didn't focus on that. I focused a lot on step one, mm-hmm. all right? You know, and that was, you know, on will over drugs and alcohol, right? You know, that was the big one. And once I admitted that, it became a lot easier. Awesome. Real
1: quick, what is your craziest gambling story? My craziest gambling
0: story because was- Because I saw that you were gambling a lot. I was. I did. I used to gamble. I don't gamble anymore because it's just too annoying. It's awesome. <laughs> it's it, too annoying. Well, you know, it yeah, it's, like, you know it's a stack is stacked against me. I, can't, I hate that, right? <laughs> but I mean, I think the craziest story is I have a couple of them. I mean, one of them is I went to a- we used to go to the Atlantic city a lot because uh-huh. it was close to New York. We used to a helicopter for 20 mm-hmm. minutes. Right. So once we were, it was all, it was me and Danny and Steve Madden, this guy named Elliot Levine, complete degenerate. Right. <laughs> and one of a friends from, from Brian Herman, another mm-hmm. huge gamble. I mean, we went there and we were snorting so much cocaine in the helicopter and we we're so looted out that by the time Danny would have this thing, he like, he used to get like lockjaw. He you like yeah, yeah. one hit, you like mm, you couldn't fucking That's talk. That's what you, happens to me. You get lockjaw, right? And and like by the time we landed in, in AC on the roof of the Trump Castle back then, it was a castle. He was so he could barely walk and talk. He was like stumbling down, and and we all started gambling, <laughs> and I started playing playing craps. I'm a really good craps player, like you know, uh-huh. a couple of hundred thousand on the table, right? And Danny walks over and he puts his chips down, and they're like, "I'm sorry, sir. You know, you you can't play." I'm like, he's got cerebral fucking palsy. Like, oh, I'm so sorry, <laughs> sir. Le- make room. And he's like, Danny's like, thank you very much. And Danny uh-huh. like fucking sits there. And, and then we gamble on that. I probably won a quarter million dollars <laughs> that night. But he's really got yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow,
1: that's funny. Final question. So, you know, everyone thinks it's like, you know, great that you got off drugs. And I think it's awesome. You're, you know, got an inspirational story. But I think it's even more fascinating that you were also this crazy wild bachelor and had all these different women, obviously, in the book. And now it seems like you're in a committed relationship. How did you go from being the guy that like can swindle any girl to, hey, I just want to be with one girl or, you know, want to be in a relationship?
0: I think on some level you like matured out of it or something. Well, no, or? I, I think that like there's Jordan and there's Jordan on drugs. You know, <laughs> like you know, you give me cocaine and yeah. I, you know, you know, well, I'm gonna end up probably in, in a in a brothel somewhere and you know, hoping to have the, the dirtiest one sitting on my yes, face or something. I'm a terrible, awful human being on cocaine, like mm-hmm. terrible. And people say, ew. Ask anyone on coke what I just said, they'll say, yeah, me too. It's, yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah. like it's this terrible, degenerate mm-hmm. drug that makes you do awful. Sexual things and it all seems okay and like it's like, mm-hmm. like to think about it now is like just so bad, but back then it was so great, right? You know, so number one, it was easy once I got sober because like you just a lot of the acts were all yeah. in the process of being and you know being high. Then also, I think that just with age, you know, I always say like I did my best dating after I got married mm-hmm. the first time, right? <laughs> you know, and also you know the idea that when I suddenly got very wealthy and I came into myself as a man. I started realizing, oh my God, you can get almost any girl. Not to say that I'm, I don't mean that in a way like obnoxious, but I'm saying mm-hmm. like all of a sudden a huge amount of girls that were very beautiful came, all became possible. So you're just like a kid in a candy store. Now with the age, you know, in my 50s, mm-hmm. right? Like I have a wife, and like I could barely handle her. Like mm-hmm. I'm like, <laughs> it's Like it's enough. With I have yeah. one woman to try to satisfy. Okay. Like I'd be. The thought of even being with another woman is like fucking tiring to yeah. me. It's like I there's nothing. I'd rather jerk off than, than <laughs> be another girl. You know. Hey, Amen. Let me ask you something. How did you guys meet? My current wife. Yeah. We met in Mexico when she was uh, modeling in in Mexico, and she's from Argentina, and I was on tour, and I saw her, and we took a picture together Uh and I had my assistant track her down on Instagram the next day and we started DMing each other and that's how it started.
1: Was she like, hey, you're the Wolf of Wall Street. I know
0: you're like this, you know. Type I'm a pretty of good guy. salesman you're, still. That's what I was thinking. When it, like, comes, when it comes down to it, I, I know had to talk her off the ledge a few times yeah. in the beginning, but she's also smart enough to realize that The Wolf of Wall Street, like, well, a character. It, came, well it came out in 2013. It happened in 99, yeah. and then 91, and this is a long time ago. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, you know, she was willing to take the leap of faith to judge me as I am now, but I won't say that it's not difficult mm-hmm. for her and all the women. I had a wife before her was amazing too, yeah. you know, and, and you know, and sometimes we'd back up on her that, you know, like, how do I trust you? Mm-hmm. But but she did, you know, I never cheated on her, but I think that at this point, it's kind of, I have a, I have a pretty decent track record of being faithful mm-hmm. under my belt.
1: How did you know she was gonna be someone that you wanna, you know, be with long-term? Like, how did you, like,
0: what qualities about her were you like, wow, like, I'm falling in love with this person? I think nothing collapses time like a good old-fashioned pandemic, you know? <laughs> yeah. We got locked mm-hmm. away together in, during the pandemic, mm-hmm. and, you know, you start to really see what it's like to be with someone twenty four seven, three sixty five. 365, yeah. and, you know, we were really compatible. We were living cool. at the time. I was living in a nice apartment. Uh, I live in a house now, but I was in an apartment at the time, and, you know, we got along really well in a you know relatively nice but, you know, two-bedroom apartment, mm-hmm. and I was like, Mm, that's interesting and she's beautiful she's sweet she's from an amazing family you know she didn't speak a word of english when we met so i learned spanish to speak to her you know so i learned spanish speak spanish i learned spanish very quickly but now she's fluent in english you know so it's uh that's cool yeah but um you know i think you start to realize that there's always going to be another girl who's prettier sweeter allegedly Mm you know, more of something like the, the, it's like the grass is really, it's truly, there's one thing I can tell guys out there. It's like, you know, the devil, you know, is better than the devil that you don't know. Seriously. Like, you know, there are no perfect relationships. There are no perfect women. And every girl's crazy because every guy is crazy. Mm -hmm. Every person, people are crazy. We're fucking all crazy. So if you think you're going to find this perfect person out there, who is going to basically just, you know, be this amazing partner, it's really the opposite. It's about, you know, do your imperfections match up well with her imperfections? Mm -hmm. And do you want to accept each other's shit and focus on the good stuff and and build a life? And I, wow. and I think that that's something that you kind of learn the hard way most of us mm-hmm. is that we are in the beginning think this, oh no, they said something that, you know, how dare they and like, I'll find better. <laughs> good luck with that, you yeah, know? Yeah. So Cool. Well, hey, I appreciate
1: you being on the show, man. It's been, uh, you know, truly a dream of mine to have this My happen. pleasure. I know you got to jet out of here. So I appreciate you. Thank you so much, man. Good luck. Thanks. No problem. Thank you. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.